0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, as we return to our series through the book of Acts, after taking a break through Advent. And this morning we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us ask him once again for his mercy and grace to guard and guide us as we hear his word. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I know that if all that happens here now is that I speak a bunch of words, even your words, nothing will happen. So I ask that as I preach your word and as we hear your word, your Holy Spirit would come upon us, would work within us, and would cut us to the heart, that we might respond to this gospel that we hear. Have mercy upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls this remains the holy Inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God. You read your Bible. You, as you are about to do, listen to a sermon. What then? What do you do now? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I hope so, because it's a very good question to ask. In fact, this is the exact question that the Jews ask after hearing Peter preach on Pentecost. For on Pentecost morning, we know 120 of Jesus' disciples were gathered, and as they gathered, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began proclaiming the mighty works of God in foreign languages they had never learned. And the Jews in Jerusalem, who had gathered from all over the world for Pentecost, heard the disciples, understood what they were saying in their native tongues, and they asked, what what does this mean? What is going on? And so Peter stood up and he preached, explaining to them what this experience meant. From Joel chapter 2, he explained that this meant God's promised Holy Spirit had come, inaugurating the New Age and New Covenant. From Psalms 16 and 110, he explained that all of this was confirming that the Jesus God had raised and who had ascended to heaven was both Lord and Christ. And so, in light of this word, the hearers ask, what do we do? And we should ask that same question, because the gospel always demands our response. And Peter gives two answers to the Jews' question. You see this in verse 38. What do we do? He says, you repent and be baptized. Today, we will consider just the first answer, repent. Next week, we're going to look at the very same text and we'll consider his other answer, be baptized. But before any of this, we should ask, what prompted the Jews to ask this question. And Luke tells us in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They asked the question because they were cut to the heart. The preached word did not just go in one ear, out the other. They didn't hear it as, oh, this is some interesting information, or, oh, this, this guy is pretty entertaining when he gives speeches. As Peter preached, the word struck them. It cut them like a two-edged sword. Their conscience was pierced. Their soul was pained. We call this experience Conviction. They were convicted by what they heard because they were convinced of what they heard. They were convinced of two truths one about Jesus and the other about themselves. First, they were convinced. That Jesus is, as Peter was telling them, both the Lord and the Christ. They believed Jesus is God's promised Messiah, that he is both the Lord and Savior who died on the cross, who rose again on the third day and ascended to God's right hand to rule heaven and earth. As Peter says these things about Jesus, they say, that's true. But they also believed what Peter said about them. And what did Peter say about them? You look back at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. Again, in verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They were convinced that Jesus is Lord and Christ. When Peter raised the sword of the gospel into the air, the the blade gleamed with the light of Christ's glory. But as we know, that sword has two edges, and the second edge cut them with the reality. This glorious Christ, you killed. You didn't believe him when he came to you. You rejected him in unbelief. For the gospel always reveals the glory of Christ. And it always reveals our sin against this Christ. The gospel cuts the heart. We have to understand that this is always the goal of Christian preaching. Preaching is not designed to entertain you. Preaching is not designed just to transfer information to you. Preaching has been designed by God to convince you of something, to convict you, to change your mind and your heart. So if we read and we hear God's word and nothing happens, something is wrong. If we read and hear God's Word and we think, oh, that was nice. What's for lunch? Something is wrong. For Paul says that the gospel is not just information. He says the gospel is power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if we're not being cut, maybe we're not actually believing what we hear. Paul says of the Thessalonians that when they heard the word, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work, he says, in you believers. So, if we're not being cut, maybe we really don't think this is God's Word, and we're just lumping the gospel into the same category as every other man-made religion and philosophy. If there is no cutting, there is no saving. If there is no cutting. It means the sword is just continually clanging against a heart of stone. It is not touching a heart of flesh. Now, does this mean we will always be affected in the same way when we come into contact with God's word? No. Does it mean we'll always have some really high supernatural experience every time we open our Bibles and read it? No, Does it mean that you are not really a Christian, if there are days, if there are seasons that as you read the Word, as you sit under the preaching of the word, you you feel dry and spiritually diminished? No. But it does mean that when this is happening, we should pause and reflect, why is this happening? It means we should never be okay or content with a spiritual listlessness. And it means we should press in with more urgency, and plead for God to work in and upon us. Because if you started to realize day after day, I I can't feel anything in my hands anymore. My, my feet are going numb. If you're losing feeling in parts of your body, if, if that persists, you're not just going to ignore that and say, huh, well, that's weird. You're going to go to the doctor because you recognize something is not right in my body right now. Now, here's the tricky part. We cannot produce this experience. We can't cut our own hearts. We can't create spiritual life and feeling in ourselves or in other people. I can't actually convict you when I preach. I can say the words, I can't create the supernatural experience. Paul also says of the Thessalonians, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But that Last part is not what Paul could do. He could speak the words, the power, the spirit, the conviction that was outside of his control. So we can read, we can preach, we can hear the word, but we can't supply the power and the conviction. That is the spirit's domain, the Holy Spirit who Jesus said he's going to blow and work where he wants to. We don't control him. We don't manipulate him. We don't manufacture his power. And that is very crucial. Because if we think we can manipulate the spirit and manufacture his power, then when we think about ourselves, when we think about our worship services, we're going to start thinking a lot about making sure the the lighting gets us in the right mood. We've got the right kind of, of music playing in the background, that we're creating the right atmosphere for experience. We can... Create emotional experiences. We we can do that. But emotional experiences are not the same as saving experiences. Conversion is not a formula. Conversion is a supernatural reality. Now I'm going to come back at the end of the sermon to just offer a couple of words on what do we do if we're not being cut? If We're not experiencing this reality that the Jews experienced on Pentecost. But I want you to see right here at the the forefront the necessity of this cutting. We must be convinced about Christ and convicted of our sin. Because it is this convincing and convicting that will lead us to ask the saving question, What do we do now? And the question itself is very encouraging to me, because it means that God's cutting is not intended to condemn us. His cutting is intended to lead us into salvation. This question is pulsing with hope. Yes, I'm sure there is fear. Christ is king. You killed him. There's fear. There is also hope. Do you you hear the hope in this question? They understand who Jesus is. They understand that they sinned and rejected him, but they also understand there's hope for salvation. If there wasn't, why ask the question? So the cut is both a pang of sorrow as well as a prod of hope. And so I want us to heed that prod and ask the question, what do we do? And the first answer is, repent. And Peter said to them, repent. Now, perhaps that's not the answer you expected. Maybe you expected Peter to, to answer when they ask, All right, Peter, what do we do? For, for Peter to say, we do nothing. It's all of grace. We're not justified by our works. Do nothing. Salvation is all by grace from beginning to end. Not one work we do will ever justify us before our God. But grace activates. Grace ignites the soul. Grace creates life, and if you are alive, you live. So, inactivity is never the response to saving grace. If you do nothing, you haven't received grace. But maybe that's not the answer you expected. Maybe you expected Peter to say, believe, faith, is the response to the gospel. And of course, faith is the necessary response to the gospel. Yet even though faith and repentance are distinguishable, they are also inseparable. So to speak of one is always to assume the other. Because you can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. For faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus alone for your salvation. That's what it is. It's receiving and resting in Christ alone. Repentance is turning away from your sin and unbelief, to your God. And so, you should see that these always go together. You are not receiving and resting in Christ for salvation if you are not simultaneously turning away from sin and unbelief. And you are not really turning away from sin and unbelief to your God if you are not receiving and resting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. The great theologian John Murray once wrote, The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. So, true faith is always a repenting faith. True repentance is always a believing repentance. And remember what I said earlier. The Jews were convicted because they were convinced that what what Peter said about Jesus is true. So, the question is actually a question of faith. Faith is not absent from the equation here. So, they are believing, but they also, Peter says, need to be repenting. So, what is repentance? This is what I'll spend the rest of my time this morning on and here are four characteristics of repentance. Number 1, repentance is both a sadness and a joy. It is both a sickness and a healing. The sadness overflows from this fountain of conviction. The Jews were cut because they they were convicted. They had killed their king and savior. So repentance always includes hatred of and sorrow for our sin. It's not just a bad feeling. We can feel bad about things without repenting. It's not just embarrassment. It's not just the general acknowledgment, yeah, we're, we're all imperfect, right? It's not just the regret that we were caught in what we did wrong. And it's not just the pain of those consequences. Repentance is focused on the sin. It hates what we have done. And it mourns that we have sinned against our God. Repentance is weeping bitterly like Peter because we betrayed our Lord. Repentance, therefore, is, on one hand, a very unpleasant and painful experience. It's probably one reason we don't do it. It doesn't feel good because it is intimately personal. We repent because we have finally seen our reflection in the mirror and we see that we are hideously stained and marred by sin. Nobody likes to look at a mirror and see something very ugly staring back at them. You probably wouldn't look at a mirror then. So, conviction is confronting us with this sinful ugliness, and repentance is responding to that confrontation. It is our response to the declaration, You. It's not a word when it comes to sin that we want to hear. David experienced this when Nathan, the prophet, came to him after he had plundered Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. Oh, to hear that word, you. cut David. And the Jews experienced this when Peter sounded forth, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, we may seek cover from this confrontation by arguing, yeah, but I didn't crucify Jesus. I wasn't there. This happened 2,000 years ago. But you did crucify Jesus. I crucified Jesus. How can I say that? Because it wasn't Pontius Pilate who sent Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the Sanhedrin who sent Jesus to the cross. It was not the crowds crying out, crucify him, who sent Jesus to the cross. That's not why Jesus went to the cross. God sent Jesus to the cross. Why? Because of sin. And not because of sin, generally or hypothetically speaking. He sent Jesus to the cross because of the particular sins of his particular people. He sent Jesus to the cross because of my sin. And because of your sin. So if there was no sin there was no need for the cross. Therefore, when Peter says, you, he's not just speaking to the Jews in the crowd. Peter includes himself in that you. Peter knew this pain of conviction. You read it as he goes, and he weeps bitterly for what he has done. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that week after week, when you hear me or Pastor Ryan or another preacher come up to this pulpit and talk about your sin, huh, we better never just be talking about your sin. I said it before. I'll say it again. The first person in my mind and heart when I preach to you is me. Your sin is not greater than my sin. I know that I'm standing higher than you right now, but I preach as one who is sitting with you in the pew, who has sinned against and crucified the Lord. So repentance is sadness of and hatred for our sin. I can't repent of your sin. I can repent of my sin. So I don't get these movements where people go out and let... I'm going to repent of the sins of, of other people. You repent for your sin. I'll repent for my sin and we will keep exhorting one another to this mutual repentance. The Puritans often called repentance the vomit of the soul. I think that is a very fitting description of repentance. Because why do we vomit? I know a lot in the church over the last month, including my family, has had intimate experiences with this activity. Why do we do it? Because of an intense feeling of sickness. There is a pain that causes our stomach and digestive system to go in reverse, and it comes out the other way. So it is with repentance. The felt sickness of our sin causes us to regurgitate in repentance. So repentance is sadness and sickness because it's dealing with sin. Sin is gross. But it is also joy and healing. How so? Because when we painfully recognize that God sent Jesus to the cross for our own sin, we also remember why God sent Jesus to the cross for our sin. He didn't send Jesus to the cross just to punish us in our sin. He didn't send Jesus to the cross to condemn us in our sin. He sent Jesus to the cross to take away our sin, to wash us clean. The Lamb was slain to take away sin and cleanse sinners. So Peter tells us to repent and be baptized For the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance, therefore, is mourning sin, but it is at the same time rejoicing in forgiveness. We weep for the blood that we shed at the same time. We rejoice that this blood was shed for us. Sometime after Nathan confronted King David, David wrote Psalm 51. And David pleads, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now the cross of Christ is, is God's answer to David's prayer and to our prayers. Wash me, cleanse me. That's what the blood of Christ does. But in Psalm 51, we also see this this paradox of repentance. The broken bones that have been broken by conviction are rejoicing because they've been broken to find healing. Healing. The act of vomiting is painful, but the aftermath is relief. Sometimes, when you feel really sick, you think, I wish I'd just get it out, and then I can have some relief. And that's repentance. It is sadness and joy, it is sickness and healing. So David prays in Psalm 51 for God to create in him a clean heart and renew in him a right spirit. But then he says that the the renewed spirit is the broken spirit and the clean heart is the contrite heart. Sadness and joy, sickness and healing. That is repentance. Number 2 though, repentance is changing direction. In repentance, we, as I've said, hate and lament our sin. We also love and rejoice in our God. So there's two things happening. And if these two things are happening, then we are going to turn away from the sin that we are hating and mourning to the God we are trusting and rejoicing in. Our life of faith was moving towards sin and unbelief. In repentance, we turn, we do a 180, we're now moving toward God by faith. So there are two Greek words commonly used in the Bible for repentance. One speaks more specifically to a change of mind. The other speaks more specifically to a change of heart or a change in the way you live. And both are necessary. The Jews had to have their minds changed about Jesus and themselves, and they finally realized Jesus is right, and they realized I was wrong. I'll just say that's, I think, one of the hardest parts of repentance. It's not that hard to say someone else is right, it's a lot harder to at the same time say, yeah, and I was wrong. A lot of times, if we're going to admit someone else is right, we try to do it in a way that we can say, okay, so we were, we were both right. We may have said opposite things, but somehow we, we were both still right. See, pride will always be your greatest enemy to repentance. Because to repent, you have to say, I was wrong. And I'll be the first to admit, I hate admitting that I'm wrong. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. For those of you who don't know me, I'm kidding. I I'm, I don't really think I'm always right. My oldest daughter and I are still having an argument because neither one of us will admit that we were wrong. It's been going on for years. It has something to do with snakes and whether they how they give birth. I don't remember what it is, but we, we won't admit that we were wrong. And in case you're wondering, I was right, but it's not enough to just change your mind and admit I'm wrong. You then actually have to change your way. Leandra and I were recently over uh, holiday break. We attended a, a wedding we were in Ann Arbor, which I hate being in Ann Arbor, but we were there. And on the way, at one point, I, I was supposed to turn right or I was supposed to turn left. I turned right. I was going now the, the wrong direction. And I pretty quickly realized I'm going the wrong way. Now, that's important. But if I keep driving that way, I'm still going to end up lost. So it it was important that I admitted I was wrong. If you don't admit you're wrong, you're just going to keep driving the wrong way. But the second part is you, you got to turn the car around. Now, of course, I did that blaming Google Maps of all oh, they they messed me up. It wasn't my fault. It was my fault. I just turned the wrong way. It's not enough to admit you're wrong. You actually have to turn around. And when the Spirit convicts us of sin, He is essentially setting up wrong way signs in our hearts. When you get on a highway, there's usually a wrong way sign because one way people are getting off the highway and one way people are getting onto it. And if you turn into the wrong lane, then you are headed towards a head-on collision. And you are not safe from that until you turn around. So it is with sin. See, sometimes we think salvation is just generally admitting that we're sinners, but then we just keep driving towards our sin. As if, okay, yeah, I just have to admit I'm a sinner. Then I can just do whatever I want because God, He has to forgive. That's just what He does. But salvation is not, again, like driving in a car towards a cliff and saying, you know what, I'm just going to keep driving towards this cliff. And if I drive off, well, God will just make my car fly or something. It's just what he's got to do. Salvation is not God making cars fly when you drive off a cliff. Salvation is God supernaturally convincing the driver you're heading towards a cliff and getting you to turn around. That is what the Spirit is doing when he cuts us. True repentance changes the direction of your life. Now, this doesn't mean you never sin again. It just means now As you continue to fight sin, you're doing it moving towards God instead of away from God. You're still going to hit potholes. You still might swerve. You, You still might make some wrong turns along the way. But you're moving in a different direction. That's what faith and repentance are doing. So, we are not repenting if conviction never strikes home. If no matter what people say or point out, we're always deflecting attention away from our sin, defending our sin, explaining away our sin, hiding our sin, or blaming others for our sin, and stubbornly continuing in it, we are not repenting. If it is impossible for you to actually be convicted, you are not a Christian. Christians are regularly convicted, and we keep repenting. Which brings me to number three, repentance is both decisive and ongoing. Christian conversion is a decisive moment in time. There is a moment, even if you're not aware of it, when you have moved from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light. The car is now driving in the opposite direction. However, you have to now keep driving in that new direction. So Christians are sanctified. We have been moved from outside of Christ into Christ, but we are also still being sanctified, meaning we are now, by God's Spirit, continually being conformed to look more and more like Christ. When we worked through Hebrews you remember Hebrews 10:14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified something once for all has happened something ongoing is happening so on the cross Jesus atoned for sin he washed it away and he has taken it away however until Christ returns we still sin That's why John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So we're cleansed. We're still being cleansed. We're forgiven. We're still being forgiven. This is what I mean when I say repentance is decisive and ongoing we change direction but now we keep going in that direction and we have course corrections along the way both of our cars now have that lane notification system where if you start veering out of your lane it alerts you and sometimes it actually Veers your car back into the lane. And that is what the Holy Spirit continues to do for us. We keep confessing, we keep trusting. Again, John Murray is helpful when he says, and just as faith is not only a momentary act, but an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed to the Savior, so repentance results in constant contrition. The broken spirit and the contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. It is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning it is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart in the tears of confession and contrition. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, you now come to the foot of the cross. But you don't leave the cross. You keep coming back to the cross day after day to receive the same salvation that is yours. Fourth, and finally, repentance is a gift. Like faith, repentance is something that we do. We are active in faith. We are active in repentance. This is why the Jews ask, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. It's something you are responsible for. Yet at the same time, we must understand that faith and repentance are gifts of God's grace. They don't earn us salvation. They're gifts of salvation. God commands us to repent. God also gives us the repentance that he commands. So here we hear Peter command the people, repent. Because there is no salvation apart from repentance. Yet listen to how Luke describes repentance elsewhere in Acts. In Acts chapter 3 verse 26, we read, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So we turn because God turns us. Or Acts chapter 5, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So God gives repentance. And Acts 11, verse 18, and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Something we do, it is also something God grants. That's so why I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins its answer to the question, what is repentance unto life? And this is very key. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's not a saving work. It is a saving grace. Our faith and repentance are part of God's saving grace to us. So even our act of repentance glorifies God and not ourselves. The response that we must give is something that God gives to us. So I said I'd come back at the very end, which we're at, so praise God, to address what do we do if we're not being cut to the heart? If we're not experiencing this conviction, knowing that only God can cut us, only God can convict us, if we can't produce these things and they're not happening, what do we do? Well, God has told us how he works, and we're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. He works by the power of his Holy Spirit, who's always working through the power of his word, especially through the preaching of his word. So the primary way the Spirit regenerates and leads people to repentance is through the word. And in my mind, that means two things. First, it means that we need to continually place ourselves before and under God's word. We do this as we read the word for ourselves, we do this as we sit under the preaching of the word, because it is the word which serves as a mirror for us to see ourselves, and as a a window through which we can look and see Christ. So we have to keep looking if we are going to see ourselves and Christ accurately. If we abandon the Word and the preaching of the Word because we say nothing's happening, well, then I guarantee you nothing is going to happen because you are removing yourself from the sphere of the Spirit's activity. It's like if everyone in the world was poisoned and there are stations where you can go and the antidote is being given out. If you never go where the antidote is given, how do you expect to be cured? And Paul says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if nothing is happening, keep listening to the word. And second, acknowledging God's sovereignty and salvation. This means we must keep praying and asking God to do what only he can do. Not only for ourselves but also for others. We must be like Jacob as he wrestles with God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. We must be like the persistent widow in Jesus' parable who keeps going back to the judge until he gives her what she asks for. And Jesus says he tells this parable so that we would always be praying and never losing heart. Jesus commands us to knock, to seek, to ask, and he promises, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Remember what David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. He is asking God to do what he knows only God can do. So preaching and prayer. Be where the word is preached. Be constant in prayer. And for those of you who are following the Lord in faith and repentance, we keep praying along with David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We don't need to fear God's searching of our hearts. Will he find sin? Yes. Will he find great sin? Yes. But that's our only hope of salvation. It is only as God digs it out and brings it to the surface that we can see it and we can repent of it. And God's promise, his promise to all his people is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask that even now you would search every single one of us in this room. That you would show us any grievous way in us for those who have perhaps never had that decisive moment of turning from sin to Christ, I pray that here and now you would do that work in them. And I pray for all of us here who are your children, that you would keep poking and prodding, that we would keep confessing and repenting, that we might keep rejoicing in the forgiveness that is ours in